for those who don't know, he is a professor in Mexico at the uh, Universidad Autónoma Metropolitana. Yeah, my Spanish is non-existent, so pardon me. Um, and he got his uh, PhD in international political economics from King's College in London. So he's going to talk about his book. We'll have a bit of an exchange, and we'll just go from there. Yeah. Well, okay. Great. Well, thanks uh, for the introduction, and thanks uh, very much uh, for coming. Uh, as you can see, well, from the title, no, well, it's a crisis and hegemonic transition from Gramsci's uh, Quaderni to the contemporary world economy. I put Quaderni uh, to underline that basically I'm going back to the sources. No, this is just uh, one of uh, one volume no, of the Quaderni three. No, um, not yet completely translated into English. I, I know that. Uh, Buttigieg, which uh, very unfortunately passed over very recently, he did like a translation, etc. But he didn't manage to do all of it, no? So a lot of the literature is still very much based on uh, the, um, uh, the edition published like in the 1970s, which is a, mm -hmm. a very restricted edition. And the other important book that I was reading is, of course, Marx's Capital, no? And the two, uh, I mean, there, there is now quite a lot of work in philosophy, etc., that tries to connect the two, maybe a bit less when it comes uh, to economics, no? and for me, uh, or the law of value and so on. So for me, it was important uh, to have a, like, a dialogue no? between uh, these uh, two books. And well, I'm, I'm saying something more about it later, but the important thing is, uh, or to put it strongly, I, I might even say that the Gramsci's notebooks are even like a continuation of uh, of Marx's capital, no? Um, I use it also, uh, and they are permeated by the law of value, I would say. Um, so, the book intervenes like on, on the debates on hegemony at the international level, and what, what, I, what, what I do, may, maybe three things, the first is I, I attempt to uh, reconceptualize uh, the concept of hegemony at the international level, I would say from the classical Marxist perspective, and by classical Marxist, uh, I, I mean uh, Marxists which are still related to capital. No? So this is what I'm attempting to do. So I, I go back to the notebooks. Uh, I attempted to found them in uh, 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 the concept in capital. And what I wish to underline already at this stage is that uh, unlike, uh, say, Neo-Gramscian analysis, uh, Gramsci theorized international relations and even more so uh, hegemony at the international level. Uh, I will, as, I, as I will say also a little bit later, um, um, according to the reading that, for example, Cox does, uh, Gramsci did not theorize international relations, so he's basically using concepts from the national level and transposing them to the international. Okay. Uh, so the, and the second thing I'm doing is to relate uh, this concept of hegemony to economic crisis, no? uh, and to see whether basically systemic crisis or what they call world market crisis, uh, the sort of impact they have on hegemony at international level. Um, and in order to do that, I also attempt to elaborate uh, an integral or organic theory of crisis in, in Marx, which enables me to sort of um, analyze uh, the uneven uh, and combined development of, of, of crisis. Um, the important issue there is to argue that uh, crisis 
do not need automatically to provoke crisis of hegemony. No? Sometimes, I mean, if you read world system theory and so on, you usually have this sort of idea. You have like systemic crisis uh, which lead to uh, crisis of hegemony or hegemonic transitions. Okay? Uh, the idea is to put forward the, uh, the claim that this is not necessarily the case. And finally, and this is mostly the second part of the book, the first part is theoretical and the second part is more historical, I, I try to uh, basically demonstrate uh, or exemplify what I'm saying by, uh, by looking at two concrete examples. Now, on the one hand, the Great Depression and the sort of impact it had on hegemony at the international level and the current Great Recession. No? That's the last chapter. And to see uh, what is happening, I mean, in the contemporary world economy. Okay. Uh, I say to exemplify, but actually, uh, in terms of method, I also used uh, what I learned from history in order to refine the concept. So it's dialectical, no? Okay. Um, so basically, uh, what, what I'm going to talk about in the next uh, 20 or, uh, minutes or so is according to, to these points. No? So on the one hand, uh, this uh, idea on how, I mean, the, w the way in which I reconceptualize hegemony. Secondly, uh, this question of crisis, and then we'll talk finally a little bit, uh, a little bit on the concrete historical uh, examples. No? But before entering into that, uh, maybe uh, turning a little bit to contemporary debates. Now, of course, you have the mainstream with uh, the uh, realist arguments and uh, um, or neo-realist arguments and liberalism on uh, on the question of uh, of hegemony. You know, in, in realism, you you have an analysis of uh, well, which is quite widespread. You know, the analysis of power relations and you measure power. Uh, looking at the different material capabilities, the economy, military power, and so on. No? And there, uh, in the US especially, you have mm, perhaps the biggest group argues for a decline no, of US hegemony, and even due to the crisis, the rise of China, and so on. From the liberal perspective, uh, well, you have this idea uh, that uh, you have a, well, you had a, a benevolent hegemon, okay, uh, you have an overcoming of, uh, of rivalries, basically, uh, and even China is not posing a concrete threat because China, because of the advantages that the system offers, not, they are like uh, willing to join not, the international system and so on. This is, for example, I mean, the idea uh, put forward by Eichenberg, you know, one of, of the leading figures. And from the Marxist perspective, there I make like uh, this distinction between uh, those who relate their work to capital, and I think that I mean within IP international political economy, I think about the new imperialism, Panich and Jindin, uh, or even um, design, uh, etc., which relate their work to capital, and all uh, and others which depart no, from capital. Okay, uh, Neogramtians, world system theory, and. Perhaps the most prominent today uh, are, uh, we might say, are this group of people. No? Uh, world system theory and neo-Gramscian neo analysis are those which are more prominent in uh, international relations or international political economy. Um, so how do they analyze no, uh, the current situation? Um, I mean, there I, I might 
maybe it's a strong word, but maybe I can even, uh, I, I might use it, no? It's like to call some of the Marxists like so liberal or, uh, as I would say, cosmopolitan Marxists, no? Uh, here you have an idea of, that, that uh, particularly since the 1970s, 80s and so on, you had like a, a profound transformation of the world economy, you know? Uh, internationalization of production, services, etc. And that this transformation gave also rise to uh, superstructural transformation in the sense of the creation of a transnational ruling class, okay? And interestingly, they attempt to, not all of them, but especially neo-Gramscians, uh, attempt to fundament this idea uh, in Gramsci, you know? Now, uh, if you read Gramsci, uh, you might find a paradox, no? Because Gramsci has a strongly different position on that, okay? So for him, it's very difficult to think about uh, a transnational ruling class, okay? Mm -hmm. Of course, capitalism, he says, no, has internationalism uh, in the economic sense, no, in, in its, uh, at its core, but the system is uh, based on national states, okay? So, uh, in his early writings, uh, he writes uh, on, um, uh, on the League of Nations, which is something that uh, the Neogramtians take as a proof no, of, 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 of uh, uh, Gramsci's supposed idea of the possibility of a, of a transnational uh, ruling class. And there he writes that uh, the, the, through the League of Nations, they are attempting to adapt the inter, international politics to the requirements of international trade. No? And, but just a few months later, the same Gramsci writes that liberals no, are unable to realize peace no, and the international because private and national property, and I'm quoting it, eh, generates division, borders, wars, national states in permanent conflict amongst themselves. No? So he has a strong, I mean, so repeat, although uh, this, say, cosmopolitan Marxists or liberal Marxists are taking Gramsci uh, and his writings as a proof to demonstrate the this creation of a transnational class, etc., Gramsci says something completely different, no? on this issue. So his, his thinking is much more related well, to Lenin, to, to other writers, or to writers which uh, we might associate with the new imperialism today. Mm -hmm. But what is like the, 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 the main problems? No? Uh, not all uh, uh, strands within international political, within critical international political economy have uh, thought a lot about hegemony at international level. Think of Harvey, for example, no? or Alex Kalinikos. I mean, they have this new theory of imperialism, etc., but then they don't say that much about hegemony, okay? Even Panic and Jinlin, they don't, well, they, they use the word as a synonym maybe for the strongest power, etc., but they didn't say, analyze it uh, profoundly, no? So the book attempts to, to uh, uh, fill this, uh, this, this um, empty space there, okay? Uh, those who have developed the concept uh, do it relying on Gramsci, you know? But as, I'm, as I started to say already, they do it in a way that is quite different from Gramsci. Uh, on the one hand, they uh, depart from capital, no? Uh, I mean, uh, if you read Neo-Gramscians and so on, okay, 
uh, it's a critical theory, etc., but their analysis of, uh, of the international economy is quite detached from the analysis that, that Marx uh, makes in, in Capital. No? Uh, they have, on the, on the other hand, they have like a simple transposition of the concept. So they have a specific reading of Gramsci, uh, very restricted, I would say, and then they attempt to uh, uh, propose the same at international level. No? So, and they do that with hegemony, with uh, the concept of the historic block, uh, with civil society, so they speak about a transnational historic block, a transnational civil society, etc. Uh, which is, uh, I, I guess, uh, very uh, problematic. In their analysis of hegemony itself, they still read it uh, uh, through a dichotomy, especially in relation to the, the idea of force and consent. No? To them, hegemony is mostly related or exclusively related to consent. Mm -hmm. uh, even Arrighi speaks of uh, hegemony as an addition to domination, so it's, he maintains this sort of dichotomy, no? and as I shall, uh, shall show later on, uh, Gramsci has a dialectical uh, way of looking at concepts, no? so even hegemony will entail uh, the two moments no? of coercion and of consensus, uh, le uh, leadership and domination no? as an organic uh, unity, and that's uh, another problem. Um, Moreover, if you look at uh, most of these analyses, they, and although they relate on Gramsci, they fall into the problem of economism, I would say. Uh, why economism? Uh, economism in the sense that you have like a mechanic uh, or a relation between uh, different moments. No? So uh, here a crisis, uh, an economic crisis is usually immediately related to a crisis of uh, a crisis of hegemony, no. Even in Arrighi, uh, uh, you have like uh, well two sorts of uh, uh, crisis, no. So like signal crisis, he calls them, no. Uh, uh, which uh, and then which an, an hegemonic power enable, uh, attempts to uh, supersede through financialization, and then you have a terminal crisis. Okay, but. Even there, you have uh, an economic crisis that Im immediately uh, uh, impacts or transforms itself into a, a crisis of hegemony. Okay, so this is another ec economism, no, as a as a as a problem. Um, so, um, how do I uh, analyze uh, uh, hegemony and, and this relation between, uh, say? Uh, Marx and, and Gramsci, you know, at least for what concerns my, uh, my work. No? So uh, I said like that we, we might even talk, uh, talk about a, um, a continuation, no? that, that the Quaderni represents a, a continuation of, uh, uh, of uh, Marx's capital. Here I take like the idea that has been put forward by, by Kalinikos in terms of method in, uh, in, in capital, no? in capital where Marx introduces always new determinations, no? Okay, uh, and of course he stops at Capital Volume Three, but you you could continue <coughs> introducing different determinations. Some of these determinations might be, for example, say the state, the world economy, imperialism, and Gramsci. We might we, we might argue continues the work of of Marx by analyzing 
the superstructures, okay, so that there is this strong relation. But at the same time, and implicit to that is that what Gramsci says is like uh, permeated by the law of value and the laws that Marx discovers, okay. Uh, an Italian author called Alberto Burgio, which is he's a, well, a good, very good Gramscian, um, he presents like a grand narrative in Gramsci's Quaderni, you know, so you have the, trans uh, the transition to modernity, or capitalist modernity, instauration of capitalism uh, in, a, in a first phase as an expanding system, etc., which then ends like in, a, in an organic crisis, mm -hmm. uh, and its uh, attempt to over and capitalism's at at attempt to overcome it through uh, Americanism and Fordism, for example, but also fascism. No? Okay, so you have this grand narrative. And there, the, the economic analysis is, is although Burjo does not uh, work on that too much, but the economic analysis is, is, is very important, no? because, for example, when Gramsci analyzes the uh, organic crisis of capitalism, I mean, his starting point is, for example, uh, Marx's law of, uh, of the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. No? So you, you, you find it in Gramsci uh, as an economic element that, that, that then can translate into, an econo into a political problem and uh, etc. No? So you find that. Also, another thing I do is um, to underline the importance of um, concepts analyzed as organic unities. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have concepts which are made of, 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 of two parts. No? Okay, an example, the integral state no, as being an organic unity between political society and civil society, okay, or hegemony as a dialectical uni unity between leadership and uh, and domination, force and consensus, a historic block structure and superstructure. You find that a lot in Gramsci, okay, and these elements have like a, a relative uh, independence, no, okay, uh, although. And this is why he speaks about a, an analytical distinction between these elements that constitute an organic unity, an analytical distinction, but this distinction is not organic. So although you, you might say, okay, they are different, they, they, they seem to be autonomous, etc., but they are very much uh, related. And this is very important because I will also use it in order to analyze a uh, crisis. No? Another thing I underline is Gramsci's uh, it's called the analysis of situation, no? um, and it's important because there uh, Gramsci claims to propose his uh, form of uh, Marxism. No? Okay, not only there, but it's an important note in the notebook. So, uh, and interestingly, this this uh, uh, analysis of situations is where he elaborates the concept of hegemony and so on. I mean, if, if you are interested, like in passive revolution, you can also draw on that, etc. I mean, it's a very important note. And it's like a critical re-examination of uh, Marx's uh, famous or unfamous um, uh, preface to the critique of political economy. No? Uh, and there, Gramsci underlines, uh, I mean, in that text, Marx speaks about the contradiction between the forces of production and the relations of production, etc. And, and there, the, the usual analysis is like an automatic uh, 
analysis in terms of, or a deterministic analysis where this contradiction automatically leads to a revolution, a change, etc., etc. But what Gramsci does, he underlines, no, what also Marx writes, but he underlines it very strongly, that these things happen only if, if uh, persons become conscious no, of the conflict. Mm -hmm. So it depends on whether you become, uh, uh, whether people become conscious of the conflict, whether change occurs, no? Okay. So this is the starting point for Gramsci's analysis of, of hegemony, mm -hmm. because there he takes Marx's text and elaborates on that. And this is why, I mean, this conscious thing. I mean, if you know a little uh, Gramsci, I don't know where, but this is where this is why he's so interested, you know, in intellectuals, etc. This is where he. Uh, elaborates now the philosophy of praxis. It, it, it's it's a very central uh, passage, no? Uh, and in his analysis of hegemony at the national level, he starts now from from Marx the structural transformation, and then he expands on this idea of uh, uh, the elaboration of consciousness, okay, and uh, uh, or gaining consciousness at different levels, no? Okay, at different levels. Uh, okay, I don't have time to go into that too much, but. Basically, uh, following uh, the political, I mean, three different levels. Uh, you, you have the, the, uh, the corporate solidarity, and finally uh, hegemony. Okay, and once, and it's and I would say that it, it's important to underline that in that process, you have uh, the necessity, according to Gramsci, to conquer the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you can only realize hegemony or fully realize hegemony, uh, understood as a process, once you take over the state. Hegemony before taking over the state is like uh, a deficient form of hegemony. It's like leadership, hegemonic activity, and Gramsci always writes it into inverted commas, no? Okay. And so he speaks really about hegemony only in, at the moment in which you have completely uh, taken uh, over the state. And then you, the exercise of hegemony goes through civil society, political society, uh, the economics, uh, the economic, and so on. No? Uh, eventually, when uh, he, asks, he asks whether economic crisis might lead to a crisis of hegemony, and he, his answer is no, okay? Not directly, depends, no? Because, exactly because hegemony is, uh, is a it's a particularly uh, organized form of ruling, no? Okay, he makes this uh, famous distinction between the East and the West, no? In the East, the state is uh, nothing, etc. In the West, you have civil society and so on. So, there, an economic crisis doesn't need to uh, bring about a collapse of, of the system as a whole, no? Because the civil society uh, enables to resist to, to, to that sort of situation. And this is a very important point. Uh, so, I move uh, quickly to hegemony at the international level and how. Uh, uh, how uh, I've been talking 20. Okay. Do I have like another 10 minutes or so? Sure. Yeah. Okay. If that's okay with you, eh? if you're bored, I, <laughs> I'll stop. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Gramsci, uh, well, on hegemony at the international level, he has like. Uh, and this is something that I, as I was saying is lacking no, in the analysis that uh, neo Gramscians uh, propose. Maybe Morton is a little bit of, a, of an exception there, because he also thinks that Gramsci analyzes uh, uh, international relations, not hegemony, it doesn't go 
uh, as far, but uh, at least he's saying that uh, uh, yeah, Gramsci has a take on international relations and so on. But so the important thing there is, uh, I believe, to say that Gramsci has like a dialectical understanding of international relations. What do I mean by that? He compares the national, what he calls the national personality with the individual personality and says that in order to understand person you have to see its uh, or his or her relation in society. Okay? Only then you can understand a person. Mm -hmm. The same is true for uh, um, an international person or a national personality. I don't know that comparison is nice, but you know he speaks about this national personality. And also there you can only understand what happens in in a nation taking account of what happens internationally, no? Okay, because it's what happens in one nation is permeated by what happens uh, in other nations. But then you have, of course, a, a hierarchy, no? This influence is mutual, but, but not evenly, uh, not as strong for some countries as with others, no? Okay, so hegemonic states, this is how he calls them, hegemonic states are those states which are far more, far more autonomous in their decision-making compared to subordinated states, okay? Um, so there, uh, I mean, I, relate, I, I call it like a relative geopolitical autonomy, no? So, and, and so he defines that in saying, uh, okay, one state say, like for example, the United States might take a decision, okay? And Mexico needs to feel the repercussions but not the other way around, no? So you have mutual influence, but this hierarchy. And uh, an hegemonic state is a state which is autonomous or relatively autonomous in its decision-making. Uh, hegemony is not only based on economic power, but also it needs to uh, relate to uh, political and military power, okay? Finally, uh, Gramsci argues that to decide whether one country is hegemonic or subordinated, it's, it's due to war, no? Okay, mm -hmm. or the threat of war. That's a very important element. So it's, very, it's quite realist in, in this perspective. But of course, different because, as I was saying, the law of value is very important and capitalist accumulation and so on. Um, so uh, an hegemonic country also, uh, or state, exercises hegemony. Uh, again, through coercion and consent, the two, okay? Mm, a peripheral economic uh, life is usually, uh, says Gramsci, subordinated to international relations, okay? Uh, it, uh, an hegemonic state uses like uh, implacable repression, henceforth, etc. He, an, a, a state might also uh, use uh, like a uh, softer way of influencing a subordinate country, etc. Um, he often refers to the party of the foreigner, for example, no? where you have like an, in subordinated state you have like parties which do not represent, say, the national interest, but uh, the subordinated interest, the the interest of foreign uh, of foreign powers, no? which intervene then into the into uh, a nation's economic life. Mm -hmm. um, and here you can also see that, okay, the uh, concept of hegemony at international level is different no, from the one at the national level. The national level is far more complex, far more elaborated and so on, okay? But there is a, a connection between the two. And uh, so 
what happens in a subordinated state has a lot to do uh, from what decides or wants uh, or, or does a hegemonic state. Okay, I was recently, for example, analyzing the Mexican Revolution, no? uh, in the, the one that started in, in uh, 1910 and so on. And there you can really see uh, the sort of influence that the US or even Great Britain had no? on, on, the, on, on national development. Okay? Mm -hmm. So, that, that, and this is, well, it's similar to what also Trotsky argues actually, you know, about uh, the, the importance of the international in analyzing the national level. And so, so the, there is a connection between hegemony at the international and at the national level, though they are different. So, the way in which uh, I expand uh, the, the concept, well, I, well, I, as Gramsci, I apply it. Uh, at least in this book, to, to imperialist states. No? And I basically, I argue that following the law of value, they need to accumulate and so on, which is effectively an international issue. While national states are national, or, and, and, and capital has a national anchorage, so that, uh, um, that uh, basically the argument is that in order to overcome this contradiction, national states need to become hegemonic. No? Mm -hmm. They need to become hegemonic in order to uh, guarantee the accumulation of capital. Okay? And this might happen like at, uh, at different uh, levels or with different issues. No? Uh, on the one hand, you might uh, say that how different subordinate states, uh, subordinate states are integrated within the circuit of capital, of, of a hegemonic state. Uh, uh, you have geopolitical issue as well, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so not just a direct economic, a direct economic issue, but also a geopolitical issue where hegemonic uh, uh, states need to uh, exercise influence over subordinate states in order to uh, contain rival uh, imperialist states and so on. Uh, it's also a way of where you can. Uh, a way of, uh, mm, say, outsource the contradiction of capitalist accumulation. Okay? Uh, I argue that the construction of hegemony is uh, a long and complex process. Okay? It's not something that happens from, from night to day, etc. And I distinguish, I mean, relying on, on Gramsci's analysis of hegemony at the national level, when I, I mentioned the taking over of the state, I distinguish between like two levels. Uh, a weak form of hegemony, I refer to as uh, Sturm und Drang, when it comes from the, uh, well, an analysis that also Gramsci makes, but okay, uh, a relatively weak form of hegemony, mainly economic, and what I refer to as fully realized hegemony. Okay. Um, uh, fully realized when you have not only the economic element but also the political and military element. So fully realized hegemony is a far stronger form of hegemony. Okay, I will come back on that uh, just in a few minutes. But um, for example, I, I claim that the U.S. constructed like a weaker form of hegemony during the interwar period. Mm -hmm. Uh, mainly economic, I mean it was hegemony but it was mainly economic and it was far weaker, okay? And a fully realized form of hegemony after the Second World War, no? a far stronger form of hegemony. I mean, this distinction is important in order to analyze how crises impact on, on hegemony, okay? 
maybe I'll skip, or maybe, or maybe you can have it in the discussion uh, later, the way in which I attempt to, uh, I attempt to theorize crisis. No, but basically, uh, in a, just in a word, I, 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 I'm attempting to uh, propose an integral uh, theory of crisis that, that, uh, that brings together different partial or monocausal uh, explanation for crisis, you know, like uh, financialization or overproduction, underconsumption, etc. And uh, I relate to this idea of uh, uh, organic unities uh, in Gramsci, you know? and even in capital you might recognize a whole uh, set of organic unities, no? between production and consumption, production and exchange, etc., etc. No? So it's a bit of a map, if you want, like if, 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 well, you may think a bit of the solar system, no? with, with different organic unities, and the production process basically leads to the separation between uh, the different components of an organic unity. And so I use the definition of crisis that, for example, Marx gives in theories uh, of surplus value, no? and I read it, and he says, elements which are correlated, which are inseparable, no? exactly, no? this is an organic unity, are separated and consequently forcibly united. So they are separated, this part that, uh, for example, for example produ production and exchange. No? Uh, the, 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 the process of financialization brings about a separation between production and exchange, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, uh, I continue, no? and so, they are separated and forcibly reunited. Their coherence is violently asserted against their mutual independence. Crisis is nothing but the forcible assertion of the unity of phases of the production, pr of the production process which have become independent of each other. Our, uh, here, this independency Marx is talking about is, uh, is a relative independence. No, they are related, but through the production process, I mean, in, uh, uh, of course, Gramsci, unlike liberals, uh, uh, the economic system does not tend towards equilibrium. No, it tends toward, towards disequilibrium. Mm -hmm. So the tendency is that this uh, part that constitutes an organic unity separate. And the, the important thing is to note that when I mean, the, or the question is, when can we uh, uh, speak about the, the, the actuality of crisis in, in the sense that these organic unities, they all represent a possibility of crisis, and this is how Marx even calls it, no? But when does a possibility transform into an actual crisis, no? And there I relate all of this to profitability, okay? So basically I'm arguing that in as far that you have enough profitability, this uh, uh, separation is not that problematic. No? It becomes very problematic when the separation is too big relative to profitability. Okay? So you might even have rising profitability, okay? but it constitutes an important problem when the, when the separation be, uh, between, uh, say, for example, production and consumption or production and exchange be becomes very uh, deep. Okay, uh, I don't know where, maybe I'll come back on that. But this helps me to differentiate uh, on the, uh, over the, uh, the impact of, of crisis. Now, because according to the law of value, 
the destruction of capital and so on is what resolves a crisis, no? Okay, so where in, in countries where the separation or the say, I take finance again as an, as an example, where finance or financialization is particularly strong, there you would expect like a deeper crisis, no? A deeper destruction of capital in the first place, okay? But then you have like ways in which the law of value can be mediated. Uh, Gramsci, uh, sorry, uh, Marx speaks about the size of capitals, okay? So they are able to outsource, say, the problems, really, uh, or the destruction of capital. But then you have, once you, uh, when, once you introduce states in the analysis, you might also say that states are able to mediate the law of value, no? And outsource problems related to crisis. For example, through protectionist measures, okay? Through the exchange rate, and so on. And there, so what at uh, first sight appears to be like, the, uh, like, okay, crises are deeper, where the contradictions are deeper, is, is more complex. No? It depends whether states intervene no? in order to, uh, to protect, say, their countries from crisis efforts. No? And so, especially uh, when you have like a hegemonic power, which I said is far more autonomous, a hegemonic power, thanks to its especially when uh, hegemony is fully realized, thanks to its position, is able to outsource problems related to crisis, no? Okay, uh, so, uh, on crisis and hegemonic uh, transitions, no? Once hegemony is fully realized, uh, a world market crisis or a systemic crisis doesn't need to provoke a crisis of hegemony, exactly because the hegemonic state is, is able to counteract these crisis effects. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, in a weak uh, form of hegemony, which I call like uh, Sturm und Drang hegemony, in, in, in such cases, a state is not as, uh, doesn't have the elements no, to outsource the crisis that easily. No? So the crisis might effectively lead to a crisis of hegemony mm -hmm. at the international level. So I'm trying to, can I take uh, three, four minutes? If, that, if that's okay, uh, just to uh, exemplify this, looking at uh, a little bit at uh, at the Great Depression and uh, and, uh, and 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 the current crisis. No, regarding the 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 the, the Great Depression. I'm, so I, I was saying that, in my opinion, and the analysis I make is that okay, you have a strong development of the US economy starting already in the 19th century, accelerating a lot at the end of the 19th century and so on. So this idea that the US had to become hegemonic mm -hmm, in order to guarantee the accumulation of capital. And I believe that through the, second, the First World War they are able to become hegemonic, but a weak form of hegemony. Okay? So basically they are uh, able through the Dover's plan, etc., uh, to impose the dollar no, as the central currency already uh, uh, during that period. Uh, they are able to bind even the British Empire no, to their own policies and so on. Um, they, um, uh, through the, the Washington Conference in 1920-21, no, uh, they are able also to uh, uh, to encrust their advantage, their military advantage, even in the Far East, etc. So they do like a, 
uh, a set of things that enable them to, to be uh, like hegemonic. Again, the political and uh, military uh, involvement is, is there, but it's not as strong as you would find it later on. No? Okay. So I think it's interesting to note that with the Great Depression, all this construct that they had uh, uh, start to crumble. No? Okay. Uh, Britain uh, abandons the gold standard. No, uh, the, um, uh, Japan invades Manchuria initially, and so on. You have uh, lots of countries that uh, that drop out from uh, from the gold standard that the U.S. constructed, and so on. So this uh, form of hegemony that the U.S. actually were ready to construct uh, is evaporates no? through the Great Depression. No? You have the emergence of again of Germany, no with its own hegemonic project, Japan as well, um, the UK that attempts to re uh, revitalize the empire, you have the construction of trading blocks, protectionism and so on. No? So the US, even, uh, well I, I'm leaving, as I said, I, uh, I, I'm living in, in Latin, in, in Mexico at the moment, even a lot of the things that, happens in, uh, that happen in Latin America during the Great Depression and the, the start of uh, Industrial substi uh, the, uh, sub um, uh, uh, import substitution and so on, nationalism, etc. Et like, starts during this period, no? when the US are weak. Mm -hmm. uh, so, the, the big change is, uh, of course, uh, with, uh, the, with the, the, uh, the Second World War. No? Okay. Um, then, I mean, there you have like the construction of a different, much more stronger form of hegemony. That time round, after the Second World War, it won't be just economic. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like uh, politically cemented through different institutions, uh, even military cemented, no? for example, through NATO and so on. So the, the sort of control that uh, the US gained over the world economy and over different countries is far deeper no, and stronger. And so if we analyze, the, uh, say, the, uh, the impact of uh, economic development or crisis then on, on this sort of hegemony, we find a different thing. No? Um, in the 1970s, okay, there, uh, world system theory speaks already of a crisis of, of US hegemony. No? And, and then you have this bifurcation in the literature between, okay, crisis of hegemony or continuity thesis, no? Okay. So I agree most with this idea of continuity, okay? But not, for example, in the way in which Pai and Jin didn't do, because they, they say because uh, the US went, uh, or the, the transformation that uh, the, world system, the, the world economy so, uh, experience led to a supersession of rivalry, different countries being integrated into the empire, the US empire, and so on. So this is how he legitimizes this idea of the continuity of uh, US hegemony. I would say that actually the US are able to maintain their hegemony thanks to the position, not to, to this strong form of hegemony that they have, which enables them to counteract any attempt to translate, uh, say, a uh, economic advantages into uh, a, a construction of rival uh, hegemonies. Take the example of uh, 
of Japan, for example, no? Uh, okay, you have uh, a growing economy, etc. But Japan, uh, the U.S. since the I mean, since the Second World War, they uh, by controlling its military and so on, no? they, they never allow Japan to reach a certain level of autonomy. Okay, or, uh, that might be that would enable the country to translate this economic advantage that they have maybe in the 1970s, 80s into uh, a political construction. No? I mean, they attempted, for example, uh, uh, in, the, in the East Asian economic crisis, not to create like a, uh, a Japanese monetary fund and so on, but they, they are always blocked by the US in doing that. No? Uh, so, uh, and so this is how, this is an example of how uh, the US would use its economic power, no? political power, uh, using the dollar, no? the exchange rate, etc., uh, say to block the emergence of uh, rivals. No? Uh, I, mentioned, I mentioned Japan, but you might even mention uh, Germany and so on. And very different, I would say, is the situation of China. Because China develops outside U.S. hegemonic relations, no? so the U.S. don't have the same power that they have over uh, European countries or Japan and other or Latin American countries. Uh, uh, they, they, they don't. Uh, they cannot control uh, China as much as they uh, would like. Okay, uh, so they attempt, for example. Uh, to control the exchange rate uh, initially, but uh, China is ba basically doing what it wants with it. No, uh, they try to uh, force China into the uh, WTO, hoping that that would uh, enable the US to have control over the country. That doesn't work. No, and China is effectively ch China continues not to build uh, its uh, uh, hegemonic relations. No, okay, uh, economically. Uh, in different parts of the world, but, but slowly, also politically and uh, militarily, no? especially in East Asia. So this is why I believe that China effectively represents uh, a, ch a strong challenge to, uh, to US uh, hegemony. Mm -hmm. Because, I repeat, because the country uh, uh, developed largely outside no? uh, US uh, hegemonic uh, relation. But, as I said, the, construct, the construction of hegemonic uh, relations is, is, is a longer process, no? so uh, I, uh, I don't think that uh, we might have like a hegemonic transition like in five years or so, and many things can happen. No? Uh, but I'm just saying that, yeah, it represents uh, like a, a challenge. So with this, uh, I guess I, I, I conclude. <laughs>